Well, given that it is the third Sunday in Advent, uh, that means that we have now come to the third name uh, given to the Messiah in Isaiah 9-6. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, uh, you will find that on page 573. And as I was beginning to take a look at this passage, I was reminded of a conversation uh, that I once had with a good friend of mine. Uh, a good friend when Heather and I were living uh, on the West Coast, living up in Vancouver, Canada. A uh, good friend named Richard. Uh, Richard is Canadian, and, and though not a Christian, he enjoyed talking about spiritual things. And there was also one other thing that he really enjoyed doing, and that was complaining about the government. Richard loved to complain about the government, and one day I remember having a conversation. It was Christmas time, actually. Uh, we were standing in a, uh, in a shopping district, and he just started going off once again. And for some reason, I don't know why, but this particular time, I was just fed up with it. And so, in what I would consider not one of my finer moments... Uh, I resorted to what I might call frustrated evangelism. Yeah, you don't learn that one in a book or at class, but that's what I did. Because I remember I turned and I looked at him and I said, Richard, you will never be satisfied with the government. You will never be satisfied with the Canadian government, the U.S. government, or any other human government. And you want to know why? It's because even the best people are broken people, and thus the best governments are broken governments. There is only one government that can satisfy. That government is not elected. It is ruled by a king, and his name is Jesus. You need him. I need him. The world needs him. It got kind of quiet. <laughs> Then I pointed Richard to our text for this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And he did actually stop complaining for a moment, and he started to listen. And so let's take a moment now, uh, go to our God in prayer that we too would hear his word. Lord God, you who are high and lifted up, you who are seated on the throne, King of kings and Lord of lords, we come before you this day to hear from you now. And so we ask, please speak to us by the power of your Spirit as you open your word to us and us to your word. In Jesus, amen. And so, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. So who is this king, this king of kings, this lord of lords? Through the prophet Isaiah, God reveals him to us here with this famous fourfold name. That he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And each part of this name reveals something to us about him, about who this king is. And so this morning, we come to consider him as everlasting father. And so let's start by talking about what the name, what, what this phrase, this title means. What does it mean? Well, there are a couple things we need to be clear on to understand the name properly. And and the first is this. The first is that the use of the word father here, the use of the word father is not in reference to the first person of the Trinity. Isaiah is not here speaking about God the Father. Of course, you know the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity. Rather, here the word father is, designates a quality of the Messiah, a quality of the Messiah toward his people, toward those that he saves. He acts as a father toward his children. Now, many of you are familiar with that great hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And in that third stanza, it captures this idea so well. Father-like He tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. He's fatherlike toward us. Well, then later in chapter 63 of Isaiah, the prophet writes, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. The Redeemer being father-like. Because again here, the reference in Isaiah 6, I'm sorry, Isaiah 9, 6 is to this father-like posture, this father-like disposition toward his people. Okay, so that's the first thing we need to be clear on. The second thing we need to be clear on is that the use of the adjective everlasting is not in reference to the eternal nature of the Messiah's being, that he eternally exists, though that is true. But that's not what it's referring to. Rather, here the word everlasting expresses the the never-ending nature of the Father's care. You see, it's about the duration of his care, the never-ending nature of the Father's care. And and one scholar helped me by rephrasing the name to Father Forever. 
or forever father. Because the adjective is qualifying the nature of his father-like care. And his father-like care is never-ending. He will always protect and provide, guard and guide, no matter what. Now, of course, as as we come to this passage, uh, we know that this Messiah is Jesus. We know that his name is Emmanuel. We just sang that, that this is God with us. And if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has already referenced this two chapters earlier. Chapter 7 calls him Emmanuel. And then later, as we get to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, speaking of the birth of Jesus, echoes, refers, actually doesn't just echo, but refers directly to this passage and calls his name Emmanuel. So we know that the Messiah is Jesus. And, And while ascribing fatherhood to Jesus may seem unusual, you know, remember he does play a fatherly role in the life of his disciples. In fact, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that he even refers to us as his sons and daughters. Because you see, King Jesus is not only wonderful counselor and mighty God, but also everlasting Father. So that's what it means. But why? Why this name? Why does it matter? Well, let's talk about that now. Everlasting Father. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because we are all broken people, struggling as those living in a fallen world, struggling as those who both sin and are sinned against. And this wreaks havoc on us, and then through us it wreaks havoc into the lives of other people. I mean, just think about the difficulty of fatherhood for a moment. And and I realize for some of you, at least at the start of this sermon, if not even beforehand, when you realized what it was about, hearing the word father is difficult. In fact, I've got some friends, some people that I know who at various times in their life, and and even a friend now who has a very hard time praying to God and and thinking in father-like terms because of such a difficult earthly father. I mean, maybe you were abandoned by your father. Maybe as a little child, maybe even as an adult, abandoned your family. Maybe your father was abusive, verbally, maybe physically. Maybe it's clear that he never even wanted you in the first place. And that all you've really ever heard, or at least had communicated, is that you're just a mistake. Maybe your father has been physically present, but has been very distant, very disconnected. And there's some deep, deep wounds that go with, that come from fatherhood. Emotionally, psychologically, sometimes physically, and always spiritually. I mean, even loving parents are deeply flawed. Even loving parents fail us. I mean, I love my kids. 
but I struggle to be a good father. I mean, just even this past week, I had another parental fail. One of those moments, harsh words. And harsh words wound a child's heart. Well, let's take it a step further. Let's go back. Let's go back to the very beginning. Because the very first wound was inflicted by our first father, Adam. Adam. Now, I remember one of the times that my kids were learning about Adam and Eve. Uh, They are now ages 11, 8, and 8. But this was when Hope was 6, Ty and Mercy were 3. They have given me permission to share this story. So age six, Hope, she had just started our Kids Quest Catechism Club uh, that goes on on Sunday mornings, and she was loving it. Now, if you are unfamiliar with catechism, it's just a fancy word uh, that goes with this whole approach of question and answer so that we can learn about our historic Christian faith, and it's wonderful. Simple questions, simple answers that are very profound truths, all from God's Word, learning about who, who God is, about who we are. And so Hope was involved in this Kids Quest Catechism Club, and and like I said, she loved it. Now, another thing that that Hope really loved to do at the time at home was she loved to play teacher with her younger siblings. Sometimes they liked being students. Well, I I remember this one day, I was headed to my bedroom, walking down the hall, and I was uh, approaching Hope's room, and I could hear that once again, class was in session. But this time it struck me a little differently because it wasn't math, it wasn't reading, but it was the kids' quest, catechism questions. And so I paused for a moment. They couldn't see that I was looking in, and Hope got to the question, and she asks Ty and Mercy, who were our first parents? And Mercy's hand and all the enthusiasm of a three-year-old shot up, Mommy and Daddy! (laughs) And then Hope says... No, that's wrong. (laughs) And I see this shock on the face of my two youngest children. So then Ty, with fear and trepidation, slowly raises his hand and says, Is it Heather and Camper? (laughs) To which, of course, he, he got a no. And I'm looking at these two distraught kids thinking, what am I going to do? I mean, I've got a scandal on my hands here. (laughs) But what was great is what happened next, and Hope went on to explain that, yes, Mommy and Daddy are our parents, but our very first parents are Adam and Eve. And she took them back to the beginning and began to explain, to make clear that Adam and Eve are our first parents. Because you see, that's what we learned back in Genesis. We learn that Adam is our first father. We also learn that he is our fallen father because of his sin in the garden. And through that sin, he inflicted a wound so deep into the heart of humanity that it still hurts today. And thus we all struggle as those who both sin and are sinned against. 
regardless of whether or not you can remember specific wounds inflicted by your earthly father, we have all been wounded, all of us, by our first father. And wounded so deeply that we continually wound others through our woundedness. And so what we need is fatherhood redefined. We need fatherhood redefined for us, and that's where Jesus comes in. You may remember in John 14, Jesus speaking with his disciples, and and Philip asks, Jesus, show us the Father. And and how does Jesus respond? He, He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Well, then here in our text, in Isaiah 9, the prophet is pointing ahead. He is pointing to this Messiah, telling us that it is King Jesus who is our everlasting Father. You see, He has come in part to redefine fatherhood. Because Jesus is the new Adam, the forever Father who replaces our fallen Father. In his reflection on the Christ of Christmas, British pastor Tim Chester writes this. He's writing about uh, Philippians 2, where we see the Christ of Christmas there. And in Philippians 2, he writes, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 6. But that is precisely what the first Adam did attempt. He tried to grasp equality with God. He tried to become like God. Not like God in the way God intended, ruling over creation and love and enjoying a relationship with God. Adam tried to be like God by determining for himself good and evil. He wanted to be God in the place of God. But then enters Jesus. He is the new Adam, the true Adam. Jesus is the Adam we need. And he's also the Adam that we have. Jesus is the forever father who replaces our fallen father. You see, in in the first Adam, there is condemnation. Because without Christ, we stand condemned. Without Christ, we are condemned because of our sin. Without Christ, we are identified with the first Adam, our first father. But in Jesus, the new Adam, there is new life. There is forgiveness of sin. There is acceptance in Him. Rather than being identified with our fallen Father, we are brought in to the family of our forever Father. In in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, it's the fathering grace of our Lord Jesus Christ by which we are brought into the family of God through Him. See, in Christ, we become beloved sons and daughters. That is what we become, beloved sons and daughters in whom God takes great 
delight. And so my question for you is, have you put your trust in Jesus? Or are you still identified with the first Adam? And if you have, if you have put your trust in Jesus, are you, are you living, presently, are you living in the joy, in the reality of His forgiveness and grace? Are you living in the reality of His delight in you? Or are you still working hard to earn His favor, His acceptance? Something that might play out in the way you continually seek to prove yourself. Maybe proving yourself to yourself or to others or even to God. Or are you daily ridden with with guilt or shame because of repeated failure or painful rejection? You know, something that that might play out in in a sense of worthlessness or despair. Your insecurity and defensiveness. Friends, Jesus, the everlasting Father, longs for you to know and to live in the reality of His love. So deeply longs for that because... You see, truly knowing His love, and not just in your head, not just intellectual assent that I know God loves me, and not mistaking His love for for merely tolerating you, because that's not what it is, but truly knowing His love, getting it from the head to your heart, it radically changes your outlook on life. It radically changes the way you relate to others. It radically changes the way you live. So let let me illustrate it this way. In his book entitled About Alice, Calvin Trillin uh, shares fond memories of his late wife. And in one chapter he writes this. Once, for the program at camp, some of the volunteer counselors contributed short passages about their experiences at camp. And Alice wrote about one of the campers, a sunny little girl she called Elle. At camp, Alice had a tendency to gravitate toward the child who needed the most help. And Elle was one of those children. Alice wrote, Last summer, the camper I got closest to was Elle. She was a magical child who was severely disabled. She had two genetic diseases one which kept her from growing, and one which kept her from digesting any food. She had to be fed through a tube, and she had so much difficulty walking that I drove her around in a golf cart. One day when we were playing Duck, Duck, Goose, I was sitting behind her, and she asked me to hold her mail while she took her turn to be chased around the circle. It took her a while to make the circuit, and I had time to see that on top of the pile was a note from her mom and dad. Then I did something truly awful, something which I'm reluctant to reveal even now. I decided to read the note. I simply had to know what this child's parents could have done to make her so spectacular, to make her the most optimistic, 
most enthusiastic, most hopeful human being I had ever encountered. I snuck a quick look at the note, and my eyes fell on this sentence. If God had given us all of the children in the world to choose from, El, we would only have chosen you. Before Elle got back to her place in the circle, I showed the note to Bud, who was sitting next to me. Quick, read this, I whispered. It's the secret of life. It is. It's the secret of life. Or in the words of Victor Hugo, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that you are loved. And in Christ, that longing is a reality. If you are in Christ, then you were chosen. You were chosen in love before the foundation of the world. Now, because of sin, we are all children of disability. All of us. We've all been wounded by our first father, wounded by our earthly father, and we've all wounded others too. And yet... Though more sinful and flawed than you could ever know, in Christ, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever imagine. Brothers and sisters, the remarkable thing about the gospel, the remarkable thing about the everlasting Father is the great reversal. The great reversal. Because as Isaiah later tells us in chapter 53, by his wounds, we aren't hurt. But rather, by his wounds, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, the wounds of the everlasting Father bring real hope and true healing to the wounded. Like you and like me. And Jesus, Jesus is the everlasting Father. Our forever Father, who will never leave you, never forsake you, and whose love will never, ever let you go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this day. We thank you that you are our forever Father. We thank you that you gave yourself in love for us so that we could be brought into your family as beloved sons and daughters of God. And so we ask now that you would help us to believe and also to live in light of this amazing truth, this amazing grace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.